0: Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. My name is Neil Headley. Fun episode for you this week with Dr. Tucker Pack as we explore a million different topics, uh, including the intersection of sleep and meditation. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Uh, first, a couple of other items that we need to take care of. First of all, a very long overdue thank you to our bedheads, a number of people who, through our Patreon account, are making this show possible to uh, whatever degree they are able, including Anna and Bob and Eric, Grace, Jane, Janet, Lauren, Linda, and Ted, all in there, among others, making the small donation of a dollar a month to help offset some of the costs that we incur by putting the snooze button out there. Uh, And so thank you to all of those folks. You can become uh, a supporter of the snooze button as well just by going to patreon.com slash the snooze button. We're also going to put a link on our homepage as well. But for now, patreon.com slash the snooze button. And you can uh, make a donation of as little as a dollar a month or pledge or however you want to frame that. Um, or you can do as much as you want. It's uh, it's an easy thing. A dollar a month is the minimum that Patreon will let us accept as a pledge, and so that's where a lot of folks have chosen to jump in, and we appreciate every single one of them. Now, as for the contest, we are giving away books written by prior guests on the show, and we're bundling a couple of them together as the first prize that we are offering on the podcast. So one winner is going to get a copy of Dr. Guy Leschziner's new book, the Nocturnal Brain, and a copy of Yoga for the Inflexible Male, written uh, as Yoga Matt by our friend Roy Parvin. Both of those books going together as one prize, and you can enter by going to this website, thesnoozebutton.com slash contests. That's thesnoozebutton.com slash contests. Uh, put in your email address, and you're entered. Or you can put in your email address and... Take a look at some ways that you can get some bonus entries in there as well. Give yourself even more chances to win. And again, all the details at thesnoozebutton.com slash uh, contest slash that's snoozebutton.com slash contests. And the contest closes next Friday. Uh, December the 20th. So you've got a little bit of wiggle room, but there are some reasons that you want to enter early. So go take a peek at that. Now, onto the meat of this week's episode, we want to introduce you to Dr. Tucker pack um, uh, a a guy who is very well acquainted with our friend dr michael grandner a whole pile of names get dropped in this episode too so this is a fun one dr tucker pack here on the snooze button tucker i'm going to start you with the same question that uh pretty much every guest on the snooze button gets as their very first question how did you sleep last night
1: Um, my house has no foundation on it at the moment, which sounds like a metaphor, but there's literally my house doesn't touch the ground. It's, it's supported by Jenga blocks at the moment. And, um, <laughs> I didn't sleep great because the construction crews show up first thing in the morning and I live in an earthquake zone. So I'm very glad that this construction crews taking care of this foundation issue, but it's, it's not optimal for sleep. I'm afraid.
0: Oh my gosh. So, okay, which. Always, every time I talk to someone, whether they're, you know, the lead guitar player for a rock band or a world-class neuroscientist, the second question is always the same because the answer to the first question is almost identical. Uh, What do you do on a night where you can't sleep? What's your thing? Um (laughs) because <laughs> everybody's got different answers, right? I mean, and, and it's funny how many, and this one gets me too, how many neuroscientists have answered that question by saying, well, I know what I'm supposed to do, but here's what I actually did, you know?
1: Oh, um, what I would say the most important thing I do is, is relax. Um, (laughs) I had a, a patient in my insomnia clinic a few years ago and he, on a scale of zero to 10, circled 10, endorsing the sentence without eight hours of sleep, I can't function. The guy had started his own company. He was a millionaire. He was married. Uh, he was maybe 28 or something okay when was the last time you got eight hours of sleep oh my god 10 years ago okay what is functioning if it's not what you're doing (laughs) that um I think most of us believe that on one night of bad sleep, the next day is is useless. We're dead. And it's just not true. On one night of bad sleep, the next day is, I mean, maybe a little emotionally worse, but basically indistinguishable. Um, So I just relax and feel totally okay that one night of virtually no sleep is fine
0: uh, and I'll be nice and tired the next night. Yeah, because there are people who will obsess over that, right? Particularly, as I've come to learn, people who wear sleep trackers, who if the the tracker spits out one night of bad data, they're running around, oh my God, what am I going to do now? I'm screwed for the rest of the day. I got this big meeting coming up. What am I going to do? How am I going to cope? And they work themselves into a tizzy that ends up, before you know it, becoming two or three nights where they can't sleep because they're completely stressed out over how much sleep they didn't get on night one.
1: Or two or three years. I've seen that thing go on for, for decades sometimes where sleep itself produces so much anxiety that the moment your head hits the pillow, it's just failure and catastrophe. And sure, the last 10 years, my sleep's been intermittent. But tonight is the night where tomorrow I'm going to commit a suicide homicide um, if, if I don't get
0: eight and a half hours tonight. Interesting, yeah. And and by the way, in case you're new to the show, if you want to hear about those kinds of stories, about the crazy things people have done because of insomnia, may I refer you to Dr. Guy Leszner, who was uh, on two episodes ago talking about his book, um, The Nocturnal Brain, and it includes stories like the lady who went riding her motorcycle in her sleep, uh, all kinds of amazing things. Now, for you... I'm curious where sleep fits in your life in terms of your vocational interests, because as an example, um, our very first guest that we ever had on the show, uh, Dr. Adrian Owen, uh, talks about his interest in sleep actually developing out of the desire to study coma patients. But because there are so many more people sleeping than there are in a coma it's much easier in a sleep lab setting to find people who are sleeping and to be able to study their brains and so sleep was just kind of the natural progression for him how did you come to sleep
1: (laughs) um i was in college i was studying spanish literature and then my dad died young and suddenly and i had to take a few months off and when i came back decided i wanted to study psychology Somebody told me I needed to be in a lab if I wanted to study psychology, and the first person I asked about a lab said, want to come join this sleep lab. That was getting close to 20 years ago, and (laughs) I started sleep out of pure convenience. I didn't care about it. I wanted to go to grad school to study meditation, but this was like 2006, so I couldn't get into grad school to study. Meditation. So I pitched that I was going to grad school to study sleep as a way to, like, you know, sleep and meditation or altered states of consciousness. And then I ended up doing a PhD on sleep. And it wasn't actually until the end of the PhD that I started caring about it, <laughs> just kind of, uh, you get pigeonholed. And then like, you know, when I finished grad school, uh, somebody needed a sleep doctor on a study in Tucson. And then I ended up doing that. And then, uh, you had Michael Grander on the show recently, Tucson's not a big city. There's two sleep experts, uh, it's like two sleep expert psychologists in Tucson. It was Michael and me. Um, so then <laughs> All my patients are like, oh, there's two guys. Uh, We have to go see Tucker. He's one of the two guys. So I just sort of, when I was 20 years old, became a sleep guy and it followed me.
0: (laughs) So you and Michael are like Hall and Oates, basically, in Tucson, uh, just of the sleep world. I love that. That's amazing.
1: Um yeah I only had the whole time I I used to run a clinic in Tucson um and I was doing cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia with most of the patients and I actually only had one patient ever fail the treatment and um it's like okay what do I do with somebody I can't help there's one other guy it's like okay you got to you got to call Dr Craner <laughs> this is my last
0: idea <laughs> Um, and and it's interesting because Michael uh, seems to be one of those people where everybody in the sleep world knows Dr. Michael Grandner. Um, you know he's he's written so much, and and uh, every time you see a sleep group or a sleep conference or anything like that, I guarantee you Michael is either presenting something or moderating something. He's he's just such a he seems to be such a big cog in the sleep wheel. Um, What I love about the science behind sleep, as I've come to learn more and more about it, is that it seems radically different from so many other fields of scientific research in that everything seems to generally be moving in the same direction. There are very few... It feels like studies that pop out that suddenly contradict a whole pile of other studies. You know, I was giving this example to somebody else on the show once where we were talking about um, uh, caffeine, how in a given week there will be three studies that come out about caffeine. One of them will say it's a magic elixir. It's going to save your life. The other two studies say, oh, my God, stay away from caffeine. It's going to kill you. And there doesn't ever seem to be a consensus where with the sleep world, it just feels like there's a path. This is why I never
1: liked studying sleep. Like (laughs) your depression and my depression may have nothing in common. If you look at the research on how to cure depression, there's no consistent pattern at all. It's like an art form, right? Your sleep is the same as my sleep. What cures your insomnia will cure my insomnia. Uh, For years, I just found it boring. You go to the sleep conference and presentation after presentation is like, there's a particular problem We looked at how sleep deprivation affects this problem. It makes that problem worse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And thanks for coming. (laughs) Thanks for coming. Um, Well, it's interesting you say that, though, because I'm going to seize upon that point for a second. You said what will cure uh, my insomnia will cure your insomnia. Here's the interesting path that I'm on is, uh, because, and again, this is helpful for people who've never listened to the show before. If you're a regular snooze button listener, hang in. I'm going to try to summarize this in 30 seconds. Um, because I've been doing television and radio in the mornings and getting up at two o'clock in the morning for about 30 plus years now, uh, it means I haven't really had a good night's sleep since about 1989 and haven't had what I would consider restful sleep for most of that 30 year span. Now, when I went for my first sleep lab, we discovered that a good chunk of my problem was restless leg syndrome and that I had a, what they call a, and you know this term, obviously, Tucker, uh, a, a periodic limb movement index of 82 that's a good. Uh,
1: that's that's a good number there. That's, yeah, that's,
0: that's I, I'm I'm thinking about having like a little medal made because uh, everybody reacts the same way when they hear that number. That's why I paused because uh, I wanted to give it time get to get breathe. Some sort of karate belt for that level of unconscious kicking. <laughs> well, my wife needs the karate belt actually because she has the bruises on her shins to show for the kicking. Um, so yeah, uh, but for me, what I started learning was and and I'll hold up melatonin as what seems to be the ultimate example of this in the sleep world, people seem to have this idea that there is one magic cure-all out there for insomnia. And for me, even though, okay, so we address my restless leg, we address my periodic limb movements, but still I go back for my sleep lab and my deep sleep, my N3 sleep is, has now skyrocketed from 1% all the way up to 7%. Which, nice. is, which is still a third of where I would like to have it. And so, you know, you t- melatonin, as an example, doctors, you know, general practitioners, family doctors, whatever you call them in whatever your country is, um, will tell people who come to them and say, I can't sleep. They'll say, oh, we'll take some melatonin and everything will be fine. And then three take months news. later, pe- people are sitting there on a subreddit on the Internet going, melatonin is not working. I don't know what to do. <laughs> So talk to me about that. I mean, as far as you're concerned, there is, there's one, I mean, it's not melatonin, obviously. Is Is there, as far as you're concerned, a one thing? Because that's this entire mission I'm on is to try and help people figure out, okay, weighted blankets, Are they really going to help you sleep? So I'm going to run away and try a weighted blanket for two weeks and then track my sleep and see if it made an actual measurable difference. If not, okay, weighted blanket goes on the trash heap. Now let's try the next thing. But as far as you're concerned, it sounds like maybe there's an ace in the hole that I should probably just try first and be done with it.
1: Yeah. So um, just about everybody who goes to see the doctor for insomnia gets drugs. Um, There's better ones and worse ones of course but all drugs follow the same pattern of you quickly develop uh tolerance and then dependence so um the person who says yeah i used to have insomnia and the doctor gave me a sleeping pill and now i don't have insomnia i've i i do not think i've ever met somebody who said that um <laughs> You take your 10 milligrams of Ambien until you can't sleep anymore. Then you take your 15 milligrams of Ambien and you're just building tolerance and addiction. And then even less addictive drugs like melatonin, uh, when you throw them out, your brain is now not producing as much as it used to. Um, Your receptors become less sensitive, things like that. So when you throw it out, now you have horrible insomnia. Uh, The same way that if you're addicted to any substance, when you stop taking it, the effects are disastrous. So... The advice I usually give people is um, Benadryl is a pretty decent drug. It's been around for a long time. Um, It's one of the few drugs that doesn't change your sleep architecture, meaning like a most sleeping pills will make you unconscious, but they'll change what your brain is actually doing while you're asleep. So it, it's not healthy
0: sleep that you're generally getting. That's that's the um, big knock again, and that's the one place that we need to steer people when they're thinking about, oh, if I have a couple of glasses of wine before bed, then I fall asleep. Like I, I <laughs> fall asleep. but that changes everything once you are asleep, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. If you take a general anesthetic before bed, you will tell everyone you slept great, you were in a coma, you didn't sleep at all, you won't know that. Um, you know that because there was some, some studies uh, in the early part of the 2000s, I think, on people who took sleeping pills versus people who just lived with the insomnia, and on a bunch of variables, there were no differences, so uh, you're no less likely to cl- crash your car if you're getting drugged sleep than you are if you're just not sleeping. Older people were no less likely to fall down and hurt themselves. So if you go to see a doctor, you almost certainly get drugs. What the National Institutes of Health says is if you have insomnia, you should do cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. Um, It's a five to six week protocol. Um, It's just like, it's not widely available for whatever reason. I think the Consumers want a pill. They don't want to have to make lifestyle changes. Um, doctors make way more money if you can hand somebody a pill than spend five or six hours with them. So I, I think the structure is is against it. But I said the whole time I was running this clinic in Tucson, I had one patient whose insomnia didn't dramatically improve from the, from the treatment.
0: Do you think there's a, an avoidance, too, that maybe people are, are allergic as soon as they see the word therapy attached to it? Um, because they get this idea that, oh, I'm going to have to lie on a couch and talk about my childhood and that's going to help me sleep better. I don't think so.
1: Cause there's no, uh, there's none of that in it. Um, like people go for physical therapy yep. and they don't get scared. They have to talk about their mothers. Um, no, I, one of the things I hear most often is like, if there's something I can do about this, then it was my fault. Ah. Uh, I want to think the insomnia is something that happened to me, and if there's a behavioral treatment, it's something I'm doing to myself, and I can't handle that sort of a worldview.
0: That makes sense. Um, and and interesting that uh, because part of the rest of the journey that I'm on is because I wake up at two o'clock in the morning to go to work, and that almost as soon as I'm awake, I'm you know in one form or the other on um sleeping pills or any kind of stuff like that for me are a risk right because every once in a while there will be with whatever medications there will be that hangover um that shows up in in to whatever degree and whatever the um however it presents however the hangover manifests it's a, I I don't have the luxury of being able to have a hangover you know so it's one of those where when I hit the ground I have to be able to think fast, think debatably funny, um, you know, all these different things that come along with my job. And so I've always been terrified of any kind of sleep medication in case it dulled my edge to the point where I couldn't perform to where I thought. And so the reason I end up looking at things like weighted blankets, melatonin, different pillows, different mattress, this, that, the other is. Um, is is i'm hoping to find something that doesn't require me to be medicated i mean um even my sleep doctor here in toronto uh put me on a very very lo- like the lowest possible dose of mirapex that he thought would address my restless leg syndrome and it turned out he hit the jackpot the very first guess um, but we both kind of had concerns about, okay, we want to make sure that whatever your medication is that you're on, it's not going to impact you the rest of the day or that once you, you know, once your feet hit the floor, you're ready to go sort of thing. And obviously that would be the case with cognitive behavioral therapy, right?
1: Um, uh, no, actually <laughs> Oh. <Uh-oh. laughs> now the that- Now that you mention it, uh, what I always tell people is there's two ways to treat sleep problems. Any kind of medication is going to uh, – not medication for restless legs, of course, but any kind of medication to make you fall asleep is going to make your problem better in the short term and worse in the long term. Behavioral treatments actually make it worse in the short term. Um, So it can be – it's often just two or three days of major sleep disruption, but in bad cases, it can be about two weeks. So I'll usually have people start like on a Friday so that
0: the, the if, if the first couple days are really knocking them out, at least it's over the weekend. So you – OK. So hypothetical, if you and I were to get together and I was to become your patient for CBTI – um, and I'm not recommending necessarily that uh people approach it this way because they have the same concerns that I would, but I would look at it and go, Oh, well, if I'm gonna start this, you're right, Leah, let's let's start it on a Friday. And if I can take the following week off work, then so much the better in cl- in case I turn into one of those people who takes more than three days for all this to resolve. Is that is that a sensible approach?
1: I would usually say no in that one of the things you're trying to do for insomnia is not hyper-focus on sleep. So to take 10 days where the only thing you're concerned about is your sleep, for me, that would make me so anxious. Um, I would be up all night. I actually think the opposite approach of if you sleep three hours tomorrow night and you go to work on, if you sleep three hours tonight, you go to work tomorrow morning, Um, You can be okay. You can actually function through the workday. You won't feel as good as if you got seven hours, but you can do it. I I think that's probably a better attitude. Also, you're trying to, with CBTI, you're trying to regulate your sleep time pretty strictly, meaning you might be very tired and needing to stay up until quite late at night. So having stuff to keep you occupied, um, I would think of
0: as a good idea. Interesting. Interesting. See, there's a lot to circle back on. on, And and this is um, uh, for for, because I I always end up hearing that there are other podcasters that listen to this show. Uh, This is what makes Tucker a great guest is because he will give you an answer that will spark nine other questions. Um, (laughs) And and so I want to circle back to what you said about melatonin, because out of everybody that's been on this show that has talked almost universally derisively about melatonin you're the first person so far that has brought up the idea that if you're taking melatonin you'll end up taking more melatonin because you're i never even thought of this if you're taking it your body is going to produce less of it
1: um so what happens with most neurochemicals is your Receptors become less sensitive. So the last time I saw data on melatonin dosage, the proper dosage seemed to be about three quarters of a milligram to 1.5 milligrams. Uh, If you go into CVS, you can pick up a 10 milligram pill. Wow. The result of that is, is like with any other chemical, uh, I, don't, I don't drink alcohol or virtually never. So if I have a glass of beer, I'm like stumbling through the streets, right? <laughs> um, if I drink a glass of beer every day, it has no effect on me. I need two to get drunk and then four to get drunk. Uh, with most neurologically active chemicals, it's the same pattern.
0: So whatever it is that you're going to take, whatever you take the first time uh, is not probably what you're going to be taking uh, however many months, years, whatever it is down the road.
1: Yeah, I think thinking about alcohol is a good metric for it. What gets you drunk this week won't get you drunk next week if you get drunk every day. It's why what I usually tell people is take something every third day at the beginning of the night. The reason is one night of bad sleep has even one night of very bad sleep has very little impact on you the next day. If you measure um, reaction times, they're only a little bit worse. Emotion regulations, a little bit worse. Uh, By two nights, you're starting to be a mess. It's three nights seems to be the threshold where you actually do become quite useless and you're not driving safely and you're forgetting things and you're doing a bad job at work. So uh, I think if you're doing it maximum twice a week, it shouldn't have the same tolerance and dependence as if you're doing it nightly. Also, I think this can help with anxiety about insomnia to know that you're not going to have to
0: worry about more than two bad nights in a row. On night three, you will take something to knock you out. Yeah, it's interesting um, when you talk about even driving and all of those things because um, for people uh, here, for people who are new to the show, go back and listen to episode two. Um, If you're a fan of the show, you know about episode two with Dr. Adrian Owen from the University of Western Ontario where they did this massive study of tens of thousands of people and we're trying to figure out the cognitive impact of both too little sleep and too much sleep and I mean they were shocked to find that too much sleep has almost the same impact as too little sleep If you get you know if, if you're getting uh, 11 or 12 hours of sleep, uh, the cognitive impact is the same as a person who's getting six hours of sleep. Um, but what the way Adrian put it that I found fascinating is And I think it's something that people don't even take into consideration. You know, we we all hear about, um, you know, if you go X number of nights, as you're saying, three nights of bad sleep, then there's going to be some cognitive decline there. Except that I don't – it was fascinating the way that Adrian framed it when we talked about cognitive decline. Cognitive decline is not – memory and and the things that people would associate with alzheimer's it's making bad decisions when you're in line at starbucks it's making bad decisions when you're deciding whether or not to change lanes on the highway it's making all you know bad decisions about how to react to an email that you got at work it's those kinds of things that when scientists talk about cognitive decline it's more likely that that's what they're pointing to right
1: yeah. Longevity. Also, you see a bell curve where people sleeping seven hours live the longest uh, people sleeping less or more has the same
0: effect. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's remarkable. And, and one of the things that I find fascinating about this um, and, and I feel like a broken record sometimes because I almost bring it up with every single guest that's ever been on the show. You would think that because we all sleep and because, you know, on a given day, there are seven billion people who are spending a third of their day sleeping, probably. Um, you'd think we'd have all the science and all the data licked by now. But maybe part of the reason that we don't is because there are so many different ways to define the word sleep, because there are seven billion people doing it. So there are no clear answers, I guess, sometimes.
1: Um, I, I would think the hardest problem is uh so, okay, you're talking about people who sleep 11 hours having more cognitive issues. I was mentioning people who sleep 11 hours not living as long as people who sleep 7 um, In the real world, you can control two or three things statistically, there might be a 100,000 things you could think of that would affect that correlation, and an unknown number of things you can't think of. So, Are the people sleeping 11 hours more depressed, and it's depression that's having the cognitive impact. Do those people have sleep apnea? You can't bring 40,000 people into a lab to test them for apnea. Are they sleeping 11 hours because they have apnea and they're secretly not sleeping at all? I I would think that's what makes some of these questions uh, not to be pessimistic, but
0: impossible. uh, Things we'll never know. Interesting. Um, When we talk about the things that will work for pretty much everyone, um, one of the reasons that I wanted to get you on the show was to geek out with you for a few minutes about a subject that I know is near and dear to both of our hearts. Um, Let's start to get into the, the relationship between meditation and sleep.
1: Um yeah, I actually did a PhD in the relationship between meditation and sleep so I, I could talk about this topic indefinitely
0: so I um, mean I mean but, is there a, is there a form of meditation that works but you know is it is it does sleep get enhanced easier if for example you do TM versus mindfulness or any of the other various forms of meditation because there are so many different ways to meditate um, is is there any science out there that points to one as being super Superior to the others in terms of the effect it has on sleep.
1: No, this question, I guess, like any good question, gets very complicated. Uh, there's a couple complicating factors. One is meditating 15 minutes a day is probably something everybody should do. Um, meditating, going on like a 10 day meditation retreat, meditating for two hours a day is a completely different sort of activity that has very strange effects on your sleep uh it, it will often cause insomnia but without any of the deficits associated with insomnia really so th- that's one complicating factor is um doing a lot of meditation is a totally different ball game the other is i was writing a book uh, in like 2014, on meditation as a treatment for psychological disorders. And it was going to be an all science based sort of a book. And I ended up throwing the book out, because what I was finding was, all I'm really getting in terms of the data is information about how you ask the question. Meaning, if you compare meditation to nothing, so any physical or mental health problem, one group learns to meditate, the other group gets treatment as usual, gets put on a wait list. Meditation is a godsend, it's a panacea, it lowers your cholesterol, it boosts your immune system, unless your immune system is too high, and then it lowers your immune system, Um, (laughs) um, it, it decreases depression, anxiety, goes on forever. If you compare like two months of brief amounts of meditation to absolutely anything, there's very few cases where meditation turns out to be better than the absolutely any active control group that you compare it to. The reason is in the short term, the effect of changing your behavior, it kind of doesn't matter how you change your behavior. The effect of like the confidence that comes from making a behavior change and sticking with it overwhelms the actual effects in most cases of the behavior that you have changed. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the scientific question of. If I'm going to practice 15 minutes of meditation a day for a couple months, which one is better? Um, I've never seen any sort of decent answer to this. The philosophical answer is obviously it just depends who you ask. The TM teacher thinks TM is the best best, best method of meditation. My uh, doctoral dissertation was on trying to find physiological markers of skill at meditation, and it, it's pretty special. Speculative, these are definitely not scientific conclusions. But what it looked like I was seeing from the brainwave data is in any meditation, there are these foundational skills of turning the attention inwards and relaxing, becoming less reactive. That for any meditation, you're going to start out that way and then go from there. And if you're doing 10 minutes of meditation, that's likely to be all that you do. So in my research, we were finding that. The more meditation practice you had, the quicker that your brain waves across the scalp transitioned into um, high alpha, low theta, which is the state you'd be in lying in bed ready to fall asleep. It's it's a relaxed, comfortable sort of state. I was looking at, I think, six minutes of meditation. There was a similar study looking at closer to 30 minutes, and then you start getting these bursts of gamma, the, the highest frequency brain activity. Uh, In certain types of practices, you get very alert and your mind is functioning more than it normally would. So I think in terms of I want to meditate 15 minutes a day for a couple months, it probably doesn't matter all that much what sort of activity you're doing.
0: I, when I was a kid, I remember listening to or no, he was on PBS. I remember watching Dr. Wayne Dyer. On PBS, and I think I think Wayne Dyer was one of those ubiquitous people. If you if you grew up in the 1970s or 80s, you saw Wayne Dyer on television at some point, or your parents had his books or tapes or whatever. Um, but I saw him talking about meditation and how, in his view. Uh, 30 minutes of meditating, he described it, 30 minutes of meditating made him feel as refreshed as if he had gotten eight hours of sleep. From a science perspective, is there any validity to that claim?
1: Um, well, his claim is specifically that he feels that way. So there would be no scientific way to refute that. Um, <laughs> meditation does seem to be as uh, lots of meditation does seem to be associated with a decreased sleep need uh, that part is true 30 minutes of meditation is not the same as 8 hours of sleep in terms of uh, health alertness and so on there was some cool data I think from the 90s where it's looking at people with partial sleep deprivation. So they're sleeping six hours a night or something. They're they're getting rest every night, but not enough. And there were these two curves. And one curve is how tired are you? And day one, they're more tired. And day two, they're more tired. And then it plateaus. Day three, four, five, six, seven, they're the same. Then you look at their performance on any sort of objective task, and it's just a straight downward line. (laughs) (laughs) The same way that when you drink alcohol, one of the first things you lose is your ability to judge your own drunkenness at the moment. Right. Uh, this is also true of sleep deprivation. So feeling like you've gotten eight hours of sleep is scientifically not a very important claim. Um, crashing your car, uh, because you claim you felt awake is, is uh, not going to be much of a defense when, when you get sued.
0: <laughs> yeah. Good point. I mean, it was, I found that interesting every time I would go for the sleep lab, we're at the end of the sleep lab and I've been for two now. Uh, but you get that questionnaire, you know, that you fill out both before you go to sleep and after you wake up. Um, and, and it asks you all these various questions about your perception of your sleep state and how rested do you feel all the, how alert are you right now? All these sorts of things. And, and, you know, every once in a while there would be that irritation. That would creep into the answer. It's Like, are you kidding me? I've just come from having uh, a f- a 42 electrodes stuck to me, and and I've got duct tape all over me, and I've got I'm carrying around this giant box on my, strapped to my chest. How do you think I felt like I slept? You know, I, it just it's one of those that um, I'm I'm not sure that whoever um, whoever designed the sleep test in the beginning, whoever it is, came up with polysomnography. I have a feeling that they went into a conference room after and and put their hands on the table and said, you're not going to believe what I got them to do.
1: (laughs) Um, There's a really funny thing with that, actually,
0: which we were talking
1: about earlier. Insomniacs learn to associate their bed with anxiety and failure. The weirder of a situation you put them in, the faster they fall asleep. I worked for five or six or a long time as a tech in sleep labs doing those studies. And um, there was a perfect correlation between the amount of time somebody complained they would never be able to sleep with the gear on and how quickly they fell asleep. One of my biggest complainers was in stage two sleep in the 10 paces it took me to get from his bed to my computer where I could see his sleep stage. Uh, in wow, Sunday,
0: sleep great wow. In there. that's amazing. Because I mean I you know I was saying to my my sleep doctor uh, Mark Boulas who's been a guest on the show a couple times now um, I said there's a reason why you never see a scene in Star Wars where Darth Vader is sleeping is because he's got all this gear strapped to him he's hooked up to all this machinery he's got a breathing thing of course he's not and so no wonder he's cranky and angry all the time he's completely sleep deprived because he's having to breathe through this machine and all that no wonder people get irritated about their CPAP machines. But that's me. <laughs> that's a good joke. Um, so, I mean, as it relates to the the 15 minutes of meditation a day, which I completely agree with you, um, I, I feel like everybody on the planet should probably meditate for at least 15 minutes a day. Um, and, and if we dragged your meditation teacher, Sharon Salzberg, in here, uh, she would probably tell us that loving kindness meditation would probably be a great way to help you fall asleep. Um, but it, it's interesting, too, though, isn't it? Because sometimes – and, and I know this is true from my experience, and it's also true from the experience of a lot of people that I hear on what is currently my favorite podcast and my favorite podcast in history. Uh, it's, a, it's a show called 10% Happier with Dan Harris uh, from ABC News. And, and he is guilty of, and apparently a pile of other people are guilty of, this idea that if you don't get meditation right, then then you can obsess over the I am a failed meditator kind of a thing as well. And I mean, I've been there. I don't know if you've been there, but apparently that can be a thing for people as well, can't it?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, that's one of the most common obsessions. So my, my livelihood right now is, is part-time I do a clinical psychology practice and the other part I teach uh, residential meditation retreats around the world. And so I, I spend probably more time talking to people about their meditation practice than anything else. And um, that's one of the big hurdles everybody needs to get over in the beginning. It feels like you should be able to control your mind. So you tell it, stop thinking now. And it goes, "Uh uh-uh. And you go, oh, why do I suck at this? And then you go, mind, go to sleep. And it doesn't listen. <laughs> and if, uh, you know, if you know anything about the way that the brain works, there's a lot of things working in parallel. The brain is highly disintegrated, right? Um, it makes sense that there's not some part of your mind that can tell the rest what to do. But while you feel like there is, that guy or that girl sucks, right? Why are they so bad at this job? <laughs>
0: right. Um, and, and it's like, it's like the people who will say the worst thing you can do is try to fall asleep. No, no. I, I mean, ask Yoda. Yoda will tell you there is no try. There is do or do not do because the people who try to fall asleep are the ones who sit there and stare at the clock at 10 30, one o'clock, two o'clock, two 30 and beating themselves up. But it's the same for meditators. So is there, I mean, short of, of coming to Arizona to see you, do you have a suggestion for if if we were to try, for example, meditating as a, a way of helping ourselves sleep better, um, it, it, what do you recommend to people in terms of resources? Maybe you've got a resource of your own uh, or is there somewhere we can turn where we can learn how to do it?
1: Yeah, so I have an online course, actually. It's called Drug-Free Sleep. I actually managed to score the URL drugfreesleep.com. Nice. Which I was really proud of. I was testing mottos in the beginning, and the one I was going with was drug-free sleep. You can write it down, but you don't need to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so drugfree sleep.com is a combination of cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. So like in Tucson, like I was saying, there was two people who were doing that treatment. Um, I moved, I don't live in Tucson anymore. So I think it's just Michael, <laughs> <laughs> a million people using Tucson, uh, literally a million people use Tucson as the like hub for their healthcare. And there's, there's Michael. Um, so drug sleep is a way of learning meditation related to sleep and um, of going through the cognitive behavior therapy protocol without needing to have like a doctor in your area who takes your insurance and
0: is available. Got it. Okay. So so and and we can do the whole course online?
1: Uh yeah, it's a pre recorded online course. Uh kind of like you could take a master class or something like that.
0: What about, I mean, there are you know, we're, we're in the age of the app, right? And I think about, um, you know, for example, there are uh, sleep courses on Dan Harris's 10% app. There are all these different apps out there that you pull, you, you listen to something on your phone and they purport to be able to put you into either a meditative state or a state that's more conducive to sleep. For me, I've always found the idea of listening to something while I am trying to fall asleep to be counterintuitive because Good. and and maybe it's just the broadcaster in me but I will sit there and if uh, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I love Andy Pudicombe from Headspace. Love him, love him, love him. If I ever uh, got the chance to meet him in person, I would walk up and I would give him uh, if it was okay with him, a hug that would last 10 minutes, uh, because <laughs> Headspace probably wouldn't be okay with that's a long hug. Even, that's a little inappropriate. Um, but <laughs> Headspace was my entree to meditation. It's what got me into it in the first place until, the broadcaster in me took over, and then I started focusing on Andy's accent, and there were just things about Andy's accent that the radio guy in me found fascinating, and so it wasn't helping me fall asleep. It was sending me down this rabbit hole of thinking about accent and Andy's accent versus the accent of the guys in Monty Python versus the accent of the people on Downton Abbey versus, you know, all these, and and so it was doing the the furthest thing possible from helping me fall asleep. It was giving me new things to think about. Um, But am I right in, in the idea that some of these things that, yeah, listen to me and I'll knock you out might not be as helpful as we might think?
1: Yeah. So one thing I think you're absolutely right, like um, falling asleep with a TV on is not as good as falling asleep quietly, white noise is probably okay, but what you're trying to do is disengage, let go of the world, and people who can't disengage can get this condition called alpha sleep, which is where it's that thing where you feel like you've been awake all night but the clock is moving too fast. You couldn't have actually been awake all night. Uh, Alpha sleep is where waking consciousness is persisting into your sleep. And uh, letting go of the outside world is the thing you do to sleep deeply, right? So having somebody giving you instructions as you fall asleep isn't what I would recommend. Also, when you, I mean, when you first start meditating, it's, it's purely relaxing. But in most meditations, the point of it is to become more alert Uh, The word Buddha literally means somebody who is awake. And I I, uh, used to be roommates with a scientist called uh, Willoughby Britton, and she published a paper called Awakening is Not a Metaphor, (laughs) showing that uh, what meditation does to your brain is literally make it more awake. So what I do in my own practice and what I tell my clients is uh, meditating during the day gives you mindfulness, meaning when you get in bed and that thought goes, you're never going to sleep tonight and tomorrow is going to be a disaster. (laughs) You can just hear it as noise and ignore it rather than consider whether it is true or like most of us be absolutely certain that because we have thought it, it must be true. Um, But I don't meditate right before bed. If I meditate at night, I always take a, a break to do something dulling like uh, read a book. I'm not too excited about or watch watch YouTube. Or uh, y- you want to make your mind dull and ready to let go before you get in bed.
0: Interesting, and it's interesting that you invoke Willoughby too, because she, uh, on the subject of meditation, um, had a, a, a brilliant uh, study that was out, or perhaps uh, a paper that she wrote, or something along the lines of it. It sort of painted a picture where um, meditation is not. of the time, sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. um, (laughs) There are people who have had negative side effects from meditation. And so it's kind of, it's important to learn how to do it from someone who knows how to teach it. Right. That's so cool. You've been reading Willoughby's paper.
1: So yeah, it's, it's why if people ask me, should they do 15 minutes a day? I will always say yes. If people ask me, should they do two hours a day? Uh, We got to talk for a little while. The best analogy I've been able to come up with is it's like somebody saying, should I take LSD? (laughs) Well, well, many people have taken LSD. Most of them have been okay afterwards. Uh, you won't be bored, (laughs) but like, (laughs) will you be dancing in heaven realms? Will you have childhood trauma show up in front of you? Will you believe yourself to be psychotic for a period of time? Like, um, long meditation is exposure therapy. It is a really deep dive into your mind and there's no way to tell what you will find in there. Except when I tell people I do these long retreats, they say, oh, I would be so bored I say, you know, I've had every conceivable human emotion on retreat in extremes, uh, except that one is it's, right. just, it's never boring uh, doing long meditation like that. Yeah, you yeah, go well, on retreat and you hardly sleep at all, right? To,
0: oh, sorry. Go ahead. You go on retreat and, and, and sleep is at a premium once you're on retreat. Well, how do you mean? Um, uh, on your meditation retreats, because uh, you, you spend so I mean, I mean, not necessarily your meditation retreats that you do the residential retreats, but I, a lot of what I've heard about retreats is that, you know, you get up at a ridiculous hour, you go to bed at a ridiculous hour. Um, and, and so your your sleep duration right out of the gate is shortened
1: i don't do any of that on mine so uh like if you go on a traditional theravada buddhist retreat that's probably true like the 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 most common one they call it vipassana but it's a guy called uh, goenka is his last name and they're they're the most they're the easiest retreats to get into they're everywhere all the time um and yeah i think you wake up at four o'clock in the morning and there's no dinner um i my meditation training was under sharon who's like if a hug could turn into a human. <laughs> and so when I teach, I like to, people tend to be so cruel to themselves. Um, and I like their retreat atmosphere to be counteracting that. So uh, my first sit is at 7.15. And um, if you want to sleep through it, that's okay. <laughs> if uh, breakfast is at 8. If you sleep through breakfast, you don't get any breakfast. But um, I, I do what I would call circadian friendly retreats.
0: Interesting. Interesting. I uh, wow, now see now I'm now I'm tempted. Um but this is something that you said you do these retreats all over the world. That's right. Interesting. So I, and so for how is it something where you go to um, um a predetermined spot or is it something where you, if 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 somebody puts together a big enough group and says, "Hey, will you come to such and such a town?" you'll go? Like how does that work? Uh both actually. Yeah, sometimes uh different groups of meditators will invite me to go to a place. There's,
1: um, there's this, (laughs) one of my favorite groups of meditators in the world is of all places in Helsinki. And, um, It's just not, it's really far. And my annual retreat there seems to somehow have become February. Um, (laughs)
0: Wow, that's a good time to be in
1: Finland. Um, But yeah, I now seem to be going to Finland every February. Um, Yeah, so sometimes it'll be like that where a group invites me. I teach online classes, so there's people, you know, it's online, so there's people all over the world that come to the classes. So sometimes also I'll do like once a year in Arizona and once a year in Scandinavia, I'll do a retreat where I invite all the people within, you know, the continent who, who study with me and we'll all meet up there.
0: So hypothetically, and I'm going down a road here that you may not have even wanted to go down. And I'm sorry if I'm volunteering you for something here, but let's explore this for a second. If, if you're game, let's explore this. Um, So if somebody, if somebody wants to put a group together and invite you to lead one of these retreats, I mean how first of all how big of a group are we talking about do they need to have a space or how does like how does that work because now i'm intrigued now i'm thinking okay i I gotta bring tucker to toronto this sounds like this would be fun
1: oh i was hoping to do one in toronto this summer actually so um oh uh, there's already a group in toronto that's invited me um there's a guy that i teach with called upali and it was the first time it ever happened that we were both invited to the same city um so so he went first I'm, i'm hoping to go next um the two things that I try to make sure is the case with all of my retreats is that they're not luxury retreats where, uh, you know, you, you pay $3,000 for a week's accommodation. So I want places where there's like multiple tiers of pricing where it's cheap. Basically the retreats are accessible, not high end luxurious. The other is where they're small enough that everybody there feels like they've gotten as much of my attention as they needed. Um, I think that maxes out at a about 20, maybe a few more than 20 students. I feel like I can, I know what's going on with everybody and anybody who needs to talk is, is able to do that. So in terms of space, I mean, sometimes people just will, will rent an Airbnb. Uh, sometimes we'll, I, I was putting on one every year in Massachusetts where I was the retreat manager and, uh, I'd pick up, you know, real simple breakfast. We'd cook oatmeal and cook eggs, even simpler dinner, peanut butter sandwiches, avocados. And then I'd go to a restaurant and pick up, take out for lunch
0: every day. Interesting. Okay. So, I mean, the information that I'm about to ask you, your answer, all the stuff from your answer, I'll make sure is in the show notes. So no pressure on anybody that's listening to suddenly pull over and grab a pen or something. Um, But whether we want to get in touch with you for the retreat, whether we want to get in touch with you for uh, the online course, any of these different things, what are the best ways to get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, sure. So the, my meditation stuff is all up at meditate And I just put up a new media link. So when this posts, uh, if you loved this so much, you want to hear it again, there will be a link right there under the, the media. So <laughs> meditate is all the meditation stuff. And there's a bunch of free recorded talks up there and some guided meditations. Um, and the course that I, the online course is drugfreesleep.com. Um, and you'll get a discount if you put in the discount code snooze
0: nice i love that um tucker this was an absolute blast i feel like i could sit here and talk to you for another 45 minutes but uh you know you got a life to lead and um and and it would be easier to just bring you back for a second appearance sometime down the road as as seems oh, to be uh it seems to become a popular idea um thanks for making time um and and good sleep to you thanks for doing this today Thanks so much for having me, Neil. There you go, Dr. Tucker Peck on the snooze button. Um, The show notes will contain the link that uh, Tucker gave for a a discount code. It's a third off the price at drugfreesleep.com. The discount code is snooze, but we will make sure to keep that in the show notes. Uh, And again, uh, that's for a third off the price at drugfreesleep.com. Thanks to Tucker for extending that offer for uh, Snooze Button listeners. Listen, uh, I want to ask a favor. If you like what we're doing, uh, if you could please pass on a link to a friend, let them know what we're up to. Uh, Maybe send them a link to an episode that you liked. There's the episode from last week with uh, Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt from Mad About You uh, or a whole pile of other episodes as well. And we've got a great one in store for next week too. So don't forget the contest that's going on at thesnoozebutton.com slash contests for your chance to win a copy of Guy Leschner's new book and Roy Parvin's Yoga for the Inflexible Male as well. Until next week, thanks for being here. And hey, get some sleep, would you?